Hello, I'm Alex Zane, film journalist, movie fan, and your host for A Trip to the Movies. I'm currently in our podcast studio a mile beneath the streets of London, and in a moment, my guest this week, the wonderful Nick DeSemlian, will be talking about his brand new book, The Last Action Heroes, and taking us on his perfect night out at the cinema. Thank you for downloading the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Odeon. From as little as £2.50, your little one's imaginations can run wild this summer. Because every day during the school holidays, Odeon will be showing the most magical fairy tales and animated films ever made. So the whole family can enjoy that cinematic feeling of sinking into the softest seats and being mesmerised by massive screens for less. To immerse your family in an unforgettable adventure from £2.50, look out for Odeon Kids tickets on their website or app. You see, they make movies and the school holidays better. And if you'd like a pair of free tickets to head to your nearest Odeon, stick around after the interview and I'll tell you how you can get your hands on a pair. Also, if you'd like to watch today's interview in glorious Technicolor, head over to our YouTube channel. And please, while you're there, if you would do us the small favour of hitting that subscribe button to help us grow the pod into a giant temple of film. For all the latest updates and to get in touch, you'll find us at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod on all social media. Right then, time to introduce today's guest who I interviewed just last week in our podcast studio. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to A Trip to the Movies where each week a special guest takes us on their perfect night out at the cinema. This week we are joined by a brilliant author and film journalist. He's the editor of the legendary Empire magazine and has just followed up his critically acclaimed book Wild and Crazy Guys that look back at the comedy stars of the 80s with a new fantastic read, The Last Action Heroes, which takes a hugely entertaining deep dive into the action stars that came to define the 1980s. Here to tell us about that and take us on his perfect night out at the movies, it's the excellent Nick DeSemlian. Nick, fantastic to have you on the show. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you for your book. Thank you for your wonderful book. So um, let's uh, let's do uh, the, the quick explanation. So you're following up uh, your hugely acclaimed book, uh, Wild and Crazy Guys, about uh, the best and biggest stand-ups and comic actors of the 80s with this. And I'm going to give it its full title. Uh, Last Action Heroes, The Triumphs, Flops and Feuds of Hollywood's Kings of Carnage. Allow me to do my Letterman moment. There we go. That's your new book. Uh, right there for those watching the video. Uh, so for those who can't work it out from the title, what what is it about? It's uh, it's a pumped up title, but it's about pumped up people. Mm. It's um, yeah, it's a kind of a spiritual sequel, I guess, to Wild and Crazy Guys, which was about the the comedy stars of the eighties and the excess and the the amazing films they made, the not so amazing films they made. And I thought, where where do you go? What is even more crazy? Than the world and crazy guys, and it had to be the action stars of that era because the eighties really was. It was this time when everything was just off the leash. <clears throat> Hollywood was just throwing money at these quite eccentric people who became giant stars. And yeah, it's about Schwarzenegger, Stallone, uh, Seagal, Van Damme, Chuck Norris, Jackie Chan, uh, who's doing his thing over in Hong Kong at the same time. And um, yeah, and their kind of action ilk. Because it's true, right? I mean, like when when any anyone in film or anyone outside, you know, film, like when you talk about the greatest action movies ever made, you do your mind immediately flits back to the eighties and the action movies we saw in the eighties. What were what were the circumstances in America in Hollywood at that time that made them produce these kind of, like as you said, pumped up movies? Well, similar to the comedy, I did that, that explosion of amazing comedy came out of the 70s, which was obviously a really uh, difficult time in uh, America for a lot of different reasons. Vietnam, Watergate, there were uh, the films were reflected in that. You got very dour kind of, quite depressing often films. And um, 
the 80s started and it was like this new period of, of kind of hope and optimism and you got this explosion of energy out of it. And um, in, in the sense of action, I think definitely Vietnam was an element. You just had America lose a war, which was unthinkable. And so the cinema was a place where they could kind of restore that. And so you saw Stallone and especially Chuck Norris kind mm. of re-waging re these wars and winning <laughs> and going back to Vietnam even and like, you know, getting justice as they saw it. There's that, there's that, uh, there's that mad bit in the book where it's um, Ronald Reagan. I think, is he, is he holding up a, a poster or a T-shirt or something which says Rambo was a Republican. And if you sort of just try and put that now with like, you know, a, a president of America holding up a T-shirt with a, 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 an action star going, he was on our side. It's kind of mad. It was totally wild. Yeah, it's the equivalent of Joe Biden, like suddenly becoming best mates with Dwayne Johnson <laughs> and Vin Diesel and like, and talking about Fast and Furious in his White House briefings. That's literally what it was. You had Reagan uh, literally hyping up Rambo 3 before it came out. They would uh, call each other on the phone, him and Stallone. He got nicknamed Ronbo. I mean, it was really wild, like the ways in which pol politics and Hollywood started mixing together and especially with these action films because yeah america was having a hard time and suddenly people were making these movies in which america was glorious again and take you know you could have one american guy taking down a whole army of russians and people really responded to that it's uh it, 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 i mean these are the movie the movies that you cover in this book are, are for a lot of us not everyone but a lot of us these are the movies that you go oh, do you know what what should i what should i watch i want to watch something and you sort of go oh, do you know what i want to rewatch predator I want to rewatch Commando. I want to rewatch Die Hard. This this must have been quite a fun book to research. It was. I mean, I started writing it literally a month into the pandemic, so I was stuck at home. Uh, obviously, had the day job, but when I wasn't working on Empire, I was working my way through literal mountains of uh, Chuck Norris. <laughs> Maybe those ones weren't the most fun, but working my way through action. Uh, you know, mountain of action, literally. And uh, it was great fun, I've got to say. I mean, it's, it can get a bit samey when you're on like the 17th Jean-Claude Van Damme film and he's doing the splits for the 19th time. I mean, certainly they each found their niche and they kind of stayed in it to an extent, although some of them um, tried to change their image and, and move into comedy. You kind of mm. saw that across the board. But yeah, it was really fun. I mean, there's so many iconic films. Predator, Running Man, oh. to The Terminators, oh. um, Total Recall. Mm. The Rambos. I mean, they're, they're just, it's amazing. And these are films they're still trying to make sequels to. They're trying to remake in some cases, but the magic was there in those first films. It's kind of astonishing that over 10 years or so, the sheer number of, of classics that came out, it's incredible. I, I think that the two titans uh, whose shadow is cast uh, biggest throughout the book and biggest in the era are obviously Schwarzenegger and Stallone. And, and, and I will say this about the book because, you know, I'm, I'm obviously a film fan. So there are stories that I know. But there's so much in here I didn't know about these two and the feud. And I, I certainly didn't know the story about how it actually began. And it's kind of Stallone's fault. <laughs> Usually is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was definitely the more um, proactive of them. You know, I, I think that's a through line with Stallone through the book. He's a fascinating guy to write about because he's a study in contrast. He's this, you know, big bruising action star, but then he's into poetry and he paints and he's really artistic. But yeah, he, he uh, definitely became quite envious of Arnold. And it was at the Golden Globes just after uh, Rocky came out. And uh, Schwarzenegger was winning an award for Best Newcomer uh, for Stay Hungry. Mm. And uh, they were seated at the same table. And yeah, Stallone picks up, by all accounts, picked up a, a vase of flowers and lobbed them at Schwarzenegger's <laughs> head, which is just an unbelievable way for it to start. But yeah. And, and, and to pa paraphrase uh, 
uh, the usual suspects. Uh, the the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was getting Stallone to do Stop or My Mum Will Shoot, <laughs> which is uh, amazing that Schwarzenegger did that. Yeah, well, that was at the peak of their their feud, which eventually did cool, but during the 80s, they really hated each other. I mean, they were like competing at the size of their muscles, the size of the knives, how many people they killed in their films. <laughs> and yeah, the ultimate, uh, the ultimate trick was, um, was Schwarzenegger pretending he was really excited about a script for a comedy called Stop and My Mum Will Shoot. <laughs> and Stallone heard about this through the grapevine. He was like, no, I've got to get it. I can't let Schwarzenegger get another one. And he got it. And it turned out that Schwarzenegger hated the script. He thought it was terrible. And he set that up on purpose to like bait Stallone into doing it. And I got to talk to Ivan Reitman, sadly passed away, but I spoke to him shortly before he, he died. And uh, he told me that story and, and just an incredible, I mean, Stop on My Mum Will Shoot is truly one of the worst films. <laughs> that was probably the low point. That and, um, and Top Dog, the Chuck Norris film in which he teams up with a dog. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> to fight yeah. neo-Nazis. <laughs> I mean, Chuck Norris... Uh, I found reading about him fascinating because he's a complete blind spot for me. I never, I, I, I still to this day don't think I've seen a Chuck Norris movie. I haven't seen Delta Force or, you know, uh, any of the, the well, what, were, what were they called? Missing Action? Yeah, Missing in Action. Yeah. Invasion USA is maybe the most Chuck Norris film of all time in which, you know, communists invade America, <laughs> take over a whole city and Chuck Norris single-handedly kicks them out of windows and they go home. <laughs> um, but yeah, he was he was a bit of a blind spot to me until uh, I, I wrote an article on him uh, for Empire and I, I got to go to Texas and it was a very surreal weekend. He's still the only person I've ever interviewed who um, insisted on praying before we started, which was wow. which was something. And then we went, he had a, he had a, US, a couple of US Marshals kind of protecting him. Like, he's Chuck Norris. Yeah. Like, why would he need exactly. protection? Maybe, yeah. he, maybe he was protecting them. <laughs> um, but yeah, we went to this mixed martial arts tournament. I drove in his car with him and his, his wife and his kid and, and I sat as his guest of honor at this very surreal, violent tournament. And um, he went on stage at one point to the sound of Prodigy's Firestarter, which is an wow. image I'll never forget. But yeah, he, um, he was certainly one of the more one notes of them. Like he essentially didn't act. He just sort of turned up. Uh, and kicked people, but he was an amazing karate. Uh, you know, he was an incredible fighter. He had the skills for for real. And um, yeah, his films are are um, yeah, they're variable. There is one good one. <laughs> I would Go say on. Code of Silence. I would say check that one out. It's okay. directed by uh, Andrew Davis, who did The Fugitive and Under Siege. Yes. Really good director. Um, and um, it's Chuck Norris and Dennis Farina as cops in Chicago, uh -huh. and it's genuinely good. Okay, good. Really good. Okay, Code of Silence. I'm writing that down. That's uh, that's going on my uh, my little list. Um, obviously, one of the movies uh, that you talk about in the book and one of the stars, uh, the movie that is often quoted as the greatest action movie ever made, is Die Hard. Um, and Bruce Willis certainly feels like something of an outlier um, compared, I mean, even physically to the other stars that you talk about in this book. Yeah, he came out of nowhere, really. And and I kind of structured the book around him and around Die Hard to an extent. Die Hard um, gets its own chapter. It's the only film that does. And it comes exactly halfway through the book. And as I see it, um, there's before Die Hard and after Die Hard. And it came along and changed everything. And uh, the other action stars started imitating what Bruce did in that, um, which was to play a more vulnerable, more sensitive, kind of gentler guy. He still kills a lot of people yeah. <laughs> in violent ways. But he was, you know, in touch with his feelings and he cries and he gets injured. And, and this was all kind of anathema to Stallone and Schwarzenegger, but you saw even them uh, kind of imitate it. But um, yeah, Bruce Willis was very far down the list of, of who they wanted for that film. Mm -hmm. And Fox were uh, looking for an, a star for that movie for a very long time and everyone turned it down. And they turned it down because of the character. Like no one wanted to play this guy who's literally crawling through air vents and running away from the bad guys. It's yeah. like, you can't, Stallone would never have done that. <laughs> you know? um, 
Yeah, he's. Uh, it, it's. I, I remember. I think I'm right in thinking they uh, they didn't even want to put his face on the poster because they were like, he it just won't sell. He was like a sitcom star, moonlighting, and then people started to warm to him, and they were like, redo the poster, get his face on the bloody poster. Yeah, exactly that. Um, you know, it was so unlikely, and it kind of just shocked everyone. It shocked uh, Hollywood when people really started reacting to it. Um, and there's a story in the book about Schwarzenegger spotting Bruce Willis in a restaurant just after it came out and yelling across the room at him, like, you'll never be an action star because you've got toothpick arms. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, he could uh, he was joking, but I imagine there was an element of truth to that. that he couldn't believe this this quite sort of, you know, guy who wasn't giant, didn't yeah. spend all his time at the gym, um, had suddenly come into the, his territory mm-hmm. and, and succeeded so well. Um, you mentioned Under Siege a moment ago. Whoo! The chapters on Steven Seagal. <laughs> wow. Wow. I mean, here's a guy who was what he was off screen, on screen, by all accounts. And like, I mean, I've I never heard the story that's in the book about how he actually got into like, Hollywood in the first place, this, this confidence trick at the studio. It's absolutely wild. I mean, and because you can see in the book, like everyone else's story, they're, they're, especially Van Damme, but even Stallone and Schwarzenegger, they are hustling and they are taking small parts in things and they're working really hard. Seagal just walks into his first film is a vehicle built around him based on his life yeah. or apparently his life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was this unbelievable guy to write about and he's kind of, I guess, sort of, you know, the villain of the book. Like, but I genuinely tried to find good stories about him mm-hmm. from people, but everyone I spoke to they didn't really have any. But um, <laughs> the stories about him are unbelievable. Like he would, you know, he would claim that he was on, even years into his movie star career, he would claim he had, you know, been on secret missions or he, he would, he would uh, you know, I spoke to the writers of Executive Decision and he came in one, one Monday and they said, what have you been up to at the weekend? He said, I can't tell you, it's classified. <laughs> so he's just, he's just a, kind of an unbelievable and he kind of blurs the lines between his characters and his real life and I guess he did that deliberately, but he's quite a, yeah, quite a character. Yeah, I went down something of a uh, a rabbit hole because uh, I think a lot of it has been stripped from the internet. I think you might even mention that in the book, but his infamous SNL, Saturday Night Live, performance the stuff that's still online is just you're like this is this is madness this is it's just it's it's insanity it truly is i mean i i i've seen fortunate or unfortunate enough to have seen the whole episode of of that snl which is renowned as the worst one and um yeah, Nicholas Cage did a skit a few years on with Lorne Michaels saying, oh, I'm the worst person ever to go on. He goes, no, no, it's Seagal. <laughs> so it's like, I think he remains just a man who who every every molecule of his being is anti-comedy coming in and, you know, like every, nobody could get him to be funny. And he refused to be funny. And he was, I think his ego was so monstrous. He was incapable of making fun of himself. So it was a horrible week for all concerned by all accounts. I will say, reading the book uh, poses a bit of a, 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 a problem because you read about Seagal in the book and you're like, oh, man. And then you watch Under Siege and you're like, God damn, it's still good. It's still a good movie. And you've got to do this sort of weird disassociation where you're like, forget, even though it is just Seagal being Seagal on screen, this is a movie. This is like, it's a compartmentalizer. It's a fantastic movie. And a lot of that's got to do with Tommy Lee Jones. Mm-hmm. Gary Busey's amazing in it. Oh. Um, you know, Andy Davis, as I mentioned, the director of Code of Silence, that was his, uh, he worked a lot with Seagal. He did Seagal's first uh, film, 
above yeah. the law and did Under Siege. I mean, it is a terrific film, but yeah, the stories from behind the scenes, no one enjoyed working with him. And to the point where, you know, the, um, the director, Andy Davis, told me that, um, you know, he, he kind of worked out that Tommy Lee Jones is on screen more than Seagal. <laughs> and so <laughs> you've got, literally, the villain has more screen time than the hero. And I think they, they, they just didn't want to work with him any more than they had to. Um, one more movie I want to touch on. Um, you've obviously interviewed Stephen D'Souza. Uh, what a character! I, 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 a great orator. I, I love him. You to listen to him in an interview, you would believe he basically created movies. Uh, full stop. <laughs> um, but he's brilliant. And um, Commando uh, in the book, you forget that basically Commando, Stephen D'Souza, basically he created the modern day Arnie movie with that movie, didn't he? Like Commando was like you know his writing and this idea of the action combined with the quips. That that was how we got to know Schwarzenegger for the next decade. Yeah, and, and more than Schwarzenegger. Everyone started doing the quips, the one-liners. But really, you're right. I mean, it started with Commando, and um, he saw something in Arnold that other people hadn't seen. And, and, you know, even James Cameron started putting the quips in. But I'll be back in, in the original Terminator. It wasn't really a one-liner. It was, I mean, it was a great line, memorable line. But yeah, it, it, it got out of hand, I would say, in some of the films. <laughs> I'm quite fond of your luggage from Eraser where he shoots the alligator. But um, <laughs> you know, Running Man is, is probably a pun every like four minutes. Um, but there are so many great Arnold lines. I mean, he is the master of the one-liner. But yeah, Stephen D'Souza would work with him and they would run lines and they would work out the exact wording that would work. And they put a lot of care and attention into those one-liners at the beginning. <laughs> Not always in later projects. Um, but yeah, Stephen D'Souza is an amazing character. I mean, Running Man, uh, Commando, Die Hard, he, you know, he's there everywhere. His fingerprints are all over this genre. I'm right in thinking Commando was the first time I'll Be Back made an appearance after... Terminator, and then it became obviously the catchphrase for the next thirty years. He had to, yeah, just keep doing it. How many? Yeah, probably saying it somewhere right now. <laughs> My favorite Arnie line. I don't know why. Uh, it, it just always stuck with me. Is the bit where he's using the hologram in Total Recall, and he goes, "You think this is?" He laughs first of all. He goes, "Ah, ah, ah you think this is the real Quaid? It is. <laughs> just brilliant. Just brilliant." Uh, right. Nick, it's time now to leave this reality and head into the multiverse. We are visiting a dimension of pure film where our virtual cinema awaits. You are our guide. We are your audience. Let's go on a trip to the movie. So we push open the doors to our temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer. There's an excited buzz as there always is in a cinema foyer, the hum of anticipation. It's your perfect cinema trip, Nick. Who have you picked, living or dead, to go with you? I mean, there's no choice. I literally didn't think about it. I just went Martin Scorsese. It's like, who else are you going to go to the cinema with? The man, has, he has seen everything. He'll give you a commentary of whatever you're watching. Uh, he'll tell you the history behind the film stock that was used. Um, he's absolutely amazing. Um, you know, I had the privilege for the Irishman, uh, for Empire, a cover story of going to New York and visiting his office um, and interviewing him there, which was mind-blowing. He had a copy of Martin Scorsese on Martin Scorsese. <laughs> Martin Scorsese has that. Um, and he's got posters everywhere. And, and just sitting down and talking to him is just to be schooled. You know, I, I kind of like to think I know the odd thing about film, but it's just there. And he's just reeling off names of obscure Norwegian films that you're, you're writing down to, to watch later. And he's just amazing. The amount of energy, the passion he has um i would definitely do that but probably not a marvel film. <laughs> maybe dc yes yeah that famous that famous the, the theme park rides i kind of know what he meant though i kind of i, I kind of get what he was saying he wasn't saying marvel's rubbish he was saying they tick a box right 
Yeah, I, I was there. Like he said it to me. Right. Uh, so oh, I, I, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He said it to me during that interview. And actually, uh, a lot of people were like afterwards, "Why did he ask about what did the journalist ask about Marvel trying to start a fight?" And it's like I didn't. I asked a question about de aging um, and said, "Did you look at you know other films?" And he brought up Marvel himself. <laughs> he obviously had it on his mind. Um, but uh, yeah, he. Yeah, I think you know, it's not a big surprise that Martin Scorsese's not not you know, mm. waiting, counting down the days to watch Quantumania. Mm. Um, it's yeah. not really his thing. I, I, you know, and I think he would probably, you know, he's been saying that about blockbuster films for decades. Mm. So, but yeah, we'd, I'd let him choose. What is, what's it, I just out of interest, what's his office like? Because I imagine it's quite, it's just like overflowing with scripts and stuff, or is it, have, have I got it completely wrong? Is it not cluttered with movie stuff and is it really sparse? No, it's cluttered with right. movie stuff. Okay. Yeah, he has, he has just huge bookcases with, you know, amazing books. And he had just had um, Christopher Frayling, Once Upon a Time in the West book, this big thing. He just had that delivered to him. So he was excited. And he was, but it's just amazing. His energy, uh, he was quoting Midsummer had just come out or he had just seen it and he was quoting a bit of Midsummer and wow. kind of acting out afterwards. But yeah, it was, a, it was a total delight. So to go to the cinema with him would be the best. Do you, do you have a, a favourite Martin Scorsese film? Is, is there one that you sort of go... That's that's at the top of my list because it's quite hard because there's obviously so many good ones. There's obvious ones. I will say um, this is maybe a controversial view, and I, but I prefer Casino to Goodfellas. In fact, it's definitely a controversial view. Yeah, it's more controversial than me saying uh, I prefer Ghostbusters two to Ghostbusters, <laughs> which is another mad view I've got. What? what, but, what, 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 what really? Uh, yeah, I mean, I go back and forth a little bit, but I love Ghostbusters two. Okay, I love Ghostbusters two. I mean, I, I like Ghostbusters two, but it's not Ghostbusters. Is it? We might need another podcast to sort this out. Oh, okay. But I, what I will say is that I think Vigo is a better villain than Goza. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So there are elements in which it... it <laughs> but I get that it kind of photocopies the first one. That's really interesting, actually, because, yeah, Goza only turns up at the very end and is, uh, and then Vigo, that painting, is it's throughout and it's terrifying. I find the morphology in the first one quite complicated. It's like mm. there's a lot of exposition, there's a lot of tangled, you know, and it's funny, but... Uh, Vigo is straight up terrifying. Okay, and the pram scene. Um, okay, so and uh, I feel like we've. I feel like whatever your unpopular movie opinion is, <laughs> it, it, it's going to have to be better than Casino is better than Goodfellas and Ghostbusters <laughs> might be better than Ghostbusters. So you prefer Casino to Goodfellas? I I'm not saying it's better. Right. I just love Casino. I love the the operatic nature of it. I love that it's this huge, big, three hour, amazing. I just think the directing is incredible. De Niro gets more to do in Goodfellas. He's off to the side a bit. He's right in the middle, and I love that character, Ace Rothstein. Him and Pesci, amazing. I, I love everything about Casino. So I, I, maybe I shouldn't have brought up Goodfellas, but I love Casino. <laughs> that's fine. No, that's fine. I, I, I've got a, a slight curveball on Scorsese as well. One of the movies I don't think is talked about enough as one of his genuine greats is Shutter Island. I absolutely love that film, and like it doesn't often feature. as like when you go, oh, Scorsese, people don't go Shutter Island. It's really good. It's really intense. Mm. i got to say, I remember I have a really visceral memory of watching it uh, at the cinema. I was the only person in the screening room and um, I felt it. I physically felt that film. It was so uh, kind of unpleasant and and grimy and, and all about the mind and, mm. and that ending. So, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Okay, good. Good, yeah. Shutter Island, if, if anyone hasn't seen it, which I think is unlikely, check it out. Hey, right, there's a clock, Nick, on the wall in the foyer. It reads a specific time. What time of day have we gone to the cinema? This is a tough question. I don't know. I mean, I would happily go to the quest, uh, go to the cinema any time of day, but 7.30pm probably. Okay, because this is, obviously, uh, like myself, you end up going to press screenings because you have to see films in advance. But a 7.30pm screening at a, a, a regular cinema, 
that's a busy screen. Do you like the communal experience? Do you like a, a packed auditorium full of people? No, I prefer if it's just myself and Martin Scorsese. That would be the ideal. But yeah, some other people can come along as well. I do, actually. I really like uh, watching a film in a packed room. And you kind of feed off the energy of the audience. And if you're there and it's a new film that no one has seen, um, I've got a really fond memory of watching Scott Pilgrim versus the World in San Diego at Comic-Con the year it came out. And that was electric. I remember it was absolutely packed. And... Um, when that film played, it, you could just feel the energy in the room and that kind of was crackling. And so, yeah, I like to see it with a crowd. Okay, good, good. I, 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 so I, I honestly hadn't been to the cinema um, for ages and then I went to see Barbie on the opening weekend and it's been so long. And the, the experience of watching a film in a, in a packed auditorium as opposed to sort of like a scattering of journalists in a press screening, it's just a completely different mm. experience. Hundred percent. And I, Commando at the Prince Charles is another one of my favourite ever screenings. Um, people were quoting along, people were cheering. Everything that <laughs> happened when Arnold lifts that tree trunk up with one hand, people lost their minds. Um, when he uh, feeds a deer, people got even crazier. I mean, yeah, that, that was like constant cheering, and it was amazing. <sighs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Right, 7.30, you and Martin Scorsese heading to the cinema. Now, you booked the tickets for us, Nick. Where in the auditorium are we going to be taking our seats? This is a really boring answer, but halfway back in the middle, I mean, you don't mess around when it's cinema seats. Mm. You don't want to be stuck on the front row. I've had that, mm. and it's the worst thing ever. Awful. I've got a vivid memory of watching the Poseidon remake and having to sit in the front row and staring up Kurt Russell's nostrils for <laughs> an hour and a half, and I don't want to do that again. I mean, if the Poseidon remake couldn't get any worse than sitting <laughs> on the front row staring up Kurt Russell's nostrils. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, I, it's, 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 a, it's a good, it's a solid answer, Nick. It is <laughs> the most popular seat in the auditorium, halfway up in the middle. All right, the final thing we need before we leave the foyer and start our journey towards the auditorium itself. Oh, the air's full of wonderful smells. All manner of snacks and foodstuffs are available at the various counters. What are you choosing to eat? Again, boring popcorn, but salted, mixed up with sweet. You don't want to. You don't want to commit too much to one in case you change your mind. But yeah, keep keep yourself guessing. But um, yeah, popcorn and full fat coke. I think I'll go with that. I, I I've learned that nachos seems like a good idea, but when you get in there, it's a terrible idea. It's so noisy. <laughs> and um, I once watched Life of Pi with nachos, and it was awful because that film is really quiet for long stretches <laughs> and I, in the end I had to time it for whenever there was a storm there's like a storm every 15 minutes and I'd be like waiting and then just um, but uh, yeah too noisy too noisy terrible cinema snack whoever decided that nachos was a good cinema snack was so the only theory I've heard about nachos because I'm with you uh, the, the noise issue is like I, I don't want to be the person it gives me anxiety the idea that other people are like aware of the noise I'm making but someone suggested that this cheese this fake cheese that comes with the nachos acts as a kind of lubricant to the nachos so they almost you can almost slide them I guess whole down your throat there's a lot of admin you're right <laughs> you're right you can kind of use that to like counter the crunchiness but it's a lot of admin it's, it's a lot, lot of food admin and you're trying to watch a film and it's who needs it mm -hmm. um, but yeah if you're going to if you're going to eat nachos choose like a very noisy film otherwise you're in trouble I, I mean, I expect to know less from the editor of Empire Magazine, the most classic movie snack order in the world, full-fat Coke, tub of popcorn. Fantastic. Let's leave the foyer and begin our walk towards the auditorium. Now, I'm going to be putting up posters along this quite bare corridor that depict your most important movie memories. The first poster I'm putting up depicts your fondest movie memory. 
I think this was a this is a tough one. Uh, I've picked um, quite a formative one for me. I was at Sheffield University, and in terms of mind blowing experiences, the Fellowship of the Ring for the first time seeing it. I was at the Sheffield Showcase. Um, I was already obsessed with the film before I saw it. Uh, I was a huge Lord of the Rings fan. I had the the illustrated copies with the Alan Lee and John Howell um, uh, graphic uh, drawings illustrations, whatever the right word is. And uh, I was so excited to hear that they were involved in the film and they were designing the new films. I was like, wow, this is going to kind of be, you know, all my, is this going to be the, you know, what I was imagining coming to life. And then the Howard Shaw soundtrack dropped a few weeks before the film came out. So I was listening to that on loop. So I was already, I went in with the highest expectations. I was like, I feel, and also I was a big fan of The Frighteners by Peter Jackson. Not many people are. No. I love The Frighteners. Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, let's sidebar then. Let's quickly do The Frighteners. <laughs> I genuinely, like, I think it, 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 it's a bad, it's a bad oh, well, film. I just, well. I, I, I'm not, I, I think there's a version, come with me on this journey, I think there's a version <laughs> of this film where, because you, you're told from the start that, that uh, Michael J. Fox's character can see ghosts and ghosts are real. And then there's a weird scene in the police station where the police think he's, he's faking the whole thing. I think if we got to that point and we, the audience, aren't sure whether these ghosts are figments of like, his grief-stricken mind or not, would be kind of interesting. But because we know that they exist from the start. There's not a lot of mystery. I'll give you that. Mm. But I love The Frighteners. I've even watched, there's a four-hour documentary uh, that Peter Jackson made back when he was, <laughs> everything he did was four hours. <laughs> he made a four-hour making of, which I've seen and is incredible as well. But maybe this is my most unpopular um, opinion, but no, I think The Frighteners is a masterpiece. And um, Michael J. Fox, so, so great to see him and Peter Jackson working together. I think it's got um, a lot of echoes of what would come with Lord of the Rings, like the the villain, the Reaper, mm. is very much like the Nazgul. And I don't think you would have got... I, and the comedy, the way he co blends comedy and horror and action together, same as Lord of the Rings. So I think you can really see, like, without the Frighteners, you mm. probably wouldn't have got Lord of the Rings. But um, no, I, 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 I love that film. And so I went in and, and Lord, Fellowship of the Rings just blew me away. Like, it exceeded all my expectations. And as soon as I heard that Kate Blanchett narration, I was like, something magical is happening here. Like, what, what's going on? Like, have they nailed this? And then, yeah, every, they introduced the Hobbit, they introduced everything. And it just felt so satisfying. You know, a lot of, we get a lot of, you know, this summer where every film seems to be two and a half or three hours long, but and you feel like by the end, you're like, come on, just finish. But with Fellowship, mm. it's a three hour film that leaves you dying to see the next yeah. installment. And, and I remember coming out that, that, that screening the first time I saw it and thinking, we're getting another one of these in a year's time. And then we're getting another one. I couldn't believe it. I was, I was, you know, elevating. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right on all counts. And uh, I, I do think the only disappointing thing about the Fellowship of the Ring is that last scene where you're like, no, 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 no. I need to know what. No, I want to carry on. I want to stay in Middle Earth. I need more walking. Mm. Yeah, I need more walking. <laughs> it's not enough. I need to get my step count up. So, would you say is it your favourite of the the trilogy, uh, the Fellowship? It is. I mean, I, I love the other two as well. Don't get me wrong. It's not like the others came out and there were disappointments. Helm's Deep is amazing. Return of the King is just ludicrously epic and, and it's got some of my favorite bits in, but um, lighting of the, the beacons. Mm -hmm. But um, Fellowship for me is perfect in a way that very few films are. And it's kind of up there in my favorite films, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah. Fellowship, it's up there. Um, but it's so amazing and so masterful and i love the way he's using cg but practical you know in like together in, in this amazing way it's kind of vanished a bit yeah 
Yeah, and uh, I mean, if you were a fan uh, beforehand, did you ever, uh, as a kid, visit uh, the the Ralph Bakshi animated uh, Lord of the Rings? Never Ring? seen it. Okay, Never, I've seen enough to know that I, yeah. I might not want to want to go there. It, um, yeah, mm. the craziest thing because it's like you know, it's Lord of the Rings, so it's epic. I didn't know Lord of the Rings. I must have been about five or six when it came out and it was just the strangest experience for a kid someone puts a cartoon on mm. and you're like I know, i'm not into this yeah like, it's a cartoon you're like you're wired to like this and i remember going i'm not into this <laughs> so yeah a weird one i need to revisit it actually mm. i haven't seen it for ages all right then we're putting up a poster for the fellowship of the ring so as we continue down the corridor the second poster i'm going to put up depicts your worst movie memory oh boy yeah, again, I don't know if this is strictly the worst, but it, this popped into my mind straight away, um, and it kind of ties in with the book. Um, End of Days, Schwarzenegger, late 80s, uh, late 90s, sorry, and, and certainly in his kind of decline period. Um, but yeah, there's nothing I like about End of Days. <laughs> like, like normally with Arnold, there's something to like. Like Eraser's not a good film, but it's got those amazing rail guns. It's got the alligator stuff. Uh, End of Days should have been brilliant. The logline is amazing. It's Arnold versus Satan. I mean, right. there is no better idea. <laughs> like, I want to see that. Yep. Um, and, um, you know, it has got the line where he says, uh, you know, next to Satan, I make Satan look like a fucking choir boy. You know, it's got that, which is a decent line, but it should have been so much more fun. And it's not fun. And I, I saw this in Gerard's Cross, um, where I saw a lot of films growing up. And the sound cut off in the last 20 minutes of the film and everyone sat there. No one got up and complained. <laughs> like the entire audience just like watched the rest of the film and they just got on with their lives. And it was like, nobody cared that there was no sound. It's like, whatever, whatever. I haven't got the energy to, to complain about this. That's brilliant. Oh, wow. Yeah, I remember that movie coming out because like you, it was, you know, the, the, the build-up was exciting. It was like, it was, I think, I think one of the things everyone was talking about was because you mention it in the book, you know, the fact that Bruce Willis is a, a much more vulnerable action hero and he cried. So what, 1988, Bruce Willis cries in his first action movie, took Arnold 10 years because that was the thing. Arnold Schwarzenegger cries in this movie. And you're like, oh my God, Arnie cries. We waited a decade for it <laughs> and it happens. And you're like, yeah, it's still weird. Mm. It's still weird. Mm. Like watching Arnie cry, it's like, I'm just not. I'm not built to see that. Yeah, there's a there's a couple of decent films where he plays depressed Arnie when he came back after his his political adventures. He came back and he made Maggie and he made Aftermath. Mm. Aftermath especially is very dark and, mm. and actually he's good in it. Um, but yeah, they're not action films really in the in the traditional sense. The well, the action film that he did do that I really well I mean I probably need to watch it again. You know, if I say this and people go he doesn't like the frighteners, but he thinks this is a good film, <laughs> I might I might set myself up for a fall. But I thought the Last Stand, where he's the small town sheriff and the the the, the crooks come to town, I actually I thought this this movie has been lumped in with sort of Arnie's not making great movies anymore, whereas taken outside of that sort of mindset that people had got into it's not a bad film no it's good it's a, it's a decent film I, I'm, I wish Johnny Knoxville wasn't in it I gotta mm. say it was at that period of Hollywood history where Johnny Knoxville was in every film mm. and I think it could have done without him uh, but yeah it's, it's good I interviewed him for that film Arnold and he gave me a sheriff's badge and it's unclear whether I'm actually a sheriff but I may, I may, I may legally be a sheriff <laughs> I mean he was the governor, so he probably if he gives you a sheriff's badge it means you are legally a sheriff I haven't looked into it but it's in my sock drawer and I should look into that yeah, and the, the the thing that I was uh, another thing that excited me about End of Days was uh, Peter Hyams as a director. Just like throughout my life, I've I've loved his movies. Like they've always been these sort of outlier movies. Like um, Stay Tuned, uh, I, I like was I was obsessed with. 
as a kid. Uh, 2010, I watched that and I was like, I think I like this more than 2001 because it made more sense to me. <laughs> uh, the Relic with Tom Sizemore, I really rate that. And well, thank you for making my Ghostbusters 2 is better than Ghostbusters <laughs> 1 uh, argument look more sane. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Outland, oh my God, Outland. Outland, Sean Connery in space. <sighs> is, um, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Hyams has got it. He's got yeah. it going on. He does. Yeah. He yeah. does. I will say, finally, on End of Days, um, there's a strange sort of link to Stallone in that there's a very odd pizza moment. Do you remember this in End of Days? Uh, Arnold, to signal how depressed he is, his character, <laughs> he makes a pizza smoothie. He puts a pizza, slice of pizza in a blender with some other stuff and then mm. drinks it. And um, it's almost as odd as the moment in Cobra where um, Stallone, as his kind of hard-ass cop, takes a slice of pizza and cuts it with he takes a pizza and cuts it into a slice with, with scissors and takes it out of the freezer so it's frozen pizza <laughs> it's very very odd are we are these basically have they lent too far into this this cop is like so either broken or committed to the job he doesn't have time to eat pizza like a regular person. He's not got time to D4 pizza. <laughs> he's not got time for like a knife. He's got to use scissors. I don't know. It's um yeah. Yeah, very strange. I mean, Gabriel Byrne, I, I do the one thing I do I do rate End of Days for, he's a great devil in it. Mm. I think he's fantastic. And the scenes with him at the start where he's just arrived and he's causing havoc and then mm. he goes into that restaurant and it's he's really fucking creepy. Mm. That's great. Mm. Mm. And, and Miriam Margulies is in it. You get to see Arno, Arnie fighting Miriam Margulies yes. and killing her. Oh my God. Um my colleague at Empire Chris Hewitt did a brilliant feature years ago called Arnie Killed Me. And he just interviewed lots of people who have been <laughs> killed by Arnold on screen and talked to Miriam Margulies. It was very funny about that. But a lot of people have been killed by Arnold. There's a lot of choice there. Yeah. All right, we're putting up a poster for end of days for your worst movie memory. Right, the third poster depicts the last performance that brought you to tears, Nick. Um, I saw this film again recently as part of Sundance London. I had already been lucky enough to see it, Past Lives, which is this really wonderful um, independent film uh, that's coming out soon, uh, directed by Celine Song, um, who is a South Korean uh, filmmaker who emigrated to America. And it's about a character played by Greta Lee, who does the same, comes to um, America uh, to try and become a playwright in New York. And it's basically, it's kind of a love triangle, but it's, it's much more complex and interesting than that makes it sound. It's really about her and the guy she married, the American guy she marries, and then uh, the, the her childhood best friend who comes back into her life. And obviously there's real chemistry between those two. Um, it's a really quiet, beautiful film. I just reviewed it recently for Empire and gave it five stars. And I, I thought about it a lot over the last few months. I really love it. And, and it's, um, there's a scene involving Greta Lee um, at the end, just walking down a street that, you know, when I think about it, I get emotional. Like it's so beautifully done and it's an amazing performance. So yeah, that one. Fantastic. I haven't, I've obviously haven't seen it yet. Um, but yeah, it sounds, <clears throat> excuse me, it sounds great. It sounds really good. So we'll look out for that. So Greta Lee's performance in Past Lives. We're putting up a poster for Past Lives, the last performance that brought you to tears and our final poster before we enter the auditorium. So we, we, we've both touched on uh, various answers for this already. <laughs> but what, Nick? is your unpopular movie opinion. I feel like everything I've said has been an unpopular <laughs> movie opinion. Um, but I'll love another one on the pile. Um, I don't like the Pirates of the Caribbean's movies. I don't like any of them. And I think that's no longer completely unpopular because I think people have gone off them generally. But um, I remember uh, reading The Empire five before I worked at Empire. I remember reading the five-star review of the first one and I was like, I don't get this. Like, What am I missing? 
Um, it's not that I don't like pirates. I'm, I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite, I enjoy a pirate movie. Um, <laughs> that would be a weird swing. I just, pirates off the table. Yeah. I've got to say they should be outlawed. <laughs> they shouldn't be on the, on the open sea. Um, but no, I, I, you know, I, I, I even like the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disney, but I just find the films uh, too long, right from the beginning, way too long, uh, bloated, too many MacGuffins, they're not funny. Um, too many boats. Um, like I don't really like anything about them. I can kind of see why people like them. I can kind of see why Jack Sparrow became this iconic character, but I, I find him insufferable. And um, and again, I'm not a, I'm not anti Johnny Depp. Like I like other Johnny Depp performances, but um, I find them quite grating, and I would never choose to watch one. Okay, let's uh, just di- let's just dig a, a little deeper. Uh, let's take everything off the table dead men tell no tales on stranger tides at world's end dead man's chest let's put those in in the bin because I, I i think there's a strong argument for them not being good uh, for various reasons i certainly think towards the later films the repositioning of captain jack sparrow is less of a sort of sidekick and, a, and an outlying character which just allowed him to do his thing while there was this romance at the court and he sort of got repositioned as like you know the main guy, and it didn't work for him. It doesn't work for that character. But the Curse of the Black Pearl, uh, it's not. I, it, that's that's the one that I think people are going to go. Okay, you asked for unpopular. Yeah. I give you unpopular. I will say uh, I do very much enjoy his arrival. The the the, uh, the scene where Jack Sparrow is stepping off a sinking boat is a beautiful bit of uh, kind of Buster Keaton esque. Uh, physical comedy that works very well. Mm. I'll give them that. So I'll give them that thirty seconds, yeah. <laughs> but erase the rest with a magnet. Um, I, 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 yeah, I'm sorry. And I, I just Orlando Bloom. I love him in Lord of the Rings, mm. but I don't love him that much in anything else. Yeah. And Kira Knightley. Yeah, I just don't. Not for me. Okay, sorry. I was, uh, try wearing a corset. That line, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm just good. It's good. Okay. Well, look, it's your unpopular movie opinion. I'm, I, I'm only playing devil's advocate. I, I. I just, uh, yeah, that first, because he, didn't he, I think I'm right in saying Johnny, Johnny Depp got nominated for an Oscar for the performance in that first film. It was iconic. People loved it. And um, there have been many impersonators. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, I just, I am sure they'll probably make another one at some point. Like it feels like, you know, it's just going to run and run. That franchise is so popular. But um, what can I say? I have some films that everyone else loves and you just have some kind of allergic reaction to. And I've, try to enjoy it and I can't for some reason and I do like pirates so I don't know what's I don't know what's going on I'm going to have to you know go see a therapist and figure this out right then well I guess we'll put up a visual representation because you you do like 30 seconds of Curse of the Black Pearl so we're giving it that but we'll put up just the corner of the poster the visual representation of 30 seconds the corner of the poster of the Curse of the Black Pearl is going up as your unpopular movie opinion Right, let's get into the auditorium. So we push open our final set of doors. Now, there is a queue of people hoping to join you, Nick, and Martin Scorsese in the cinema to watch whatever movie you've picked for us. Are you letting them in? Yeah, let them in, let them in, let them in. Why not? I don't want to to be besieged and get Marty in trouble. Um, (laughs) They're very welcome. Right, the crowd go wild. They pour into the auditorium and start taking their seats. And you and Martin Scorsese take the middle halfway up. So before we get to the movie you've picked for us, we're going to play a few things on the cinema screen. And the first is the trailer for the movie you are most looking forward to seeing in the cinema. 
I mean, there's lots of them I'm looking forward to, uh, but this is one that's on my mind at the moment. It's going to be playing at Venice very soon um, at the Venice Film Festival, and it's David Fincher's The Killer. And I'm so excited. David Fincher has only made one film in the last nine years, and that's Mank. And this is uh, him coming back to basics, making a thriller, uh, teaming up with Michael Fassbender, who has been away for four years, unbelievably. Like he kind of took took four years away from acting, and he's been racing cars and and doing things. But he and Fincher have teamed up to make this uh, story about a hitman who is um, having some kind of existential crisis. The details are quite shadowy. Uh, I don't know that much about it, which just makes it exciting. Tilda Swinton is in it. It's this globe-trotting thing. And um, I, for me, any David Fincher film is a reason to get excited. And him doing a thriller about Hitman, I can't wait. I think it's going to be uh, an event. So I'm excited for that. That's, that's I mean, oh, I'm a big Fincher fan myself. and um, And yeah, that is... That is exciting. I, I guess it must be quite a weird thing. You said, as you just said, you don't uh, you don't know much about it. I'm guessing by the time you watch it, you'll probably know a bit more because of it's the nature of your job. You kind of have to know about films. Is it a shame sometimes that you never get that experience of being able to walk into a cinema and not know anything about what you're about to sit down and watch? Because it happens rarely. It's only happened once in my mm. life for. Um, the Roger Avery movie, Rules of Attraction, mm. where it was a last-minute screening. I didn't know anything. Rushed to get there, sat there, no idea what I was going to watch. And, mm. I, you know, it's quite a mind-blowing experience, sort of just mm. watching a film unfold in real time. It kind of depends on the film. You know, I, I talk a lot about trailers, and, and some films are very good at misdirection. Uh, Dead Reckoning Part 1, the new Mission Impossible film, I thought did a brilliant job of uh, showing you beats from the film, but actually holding back the entire villain and the plot. And so I felt surprised in an enjoyable way um, watching it. Other things like Indiana Jones, I felt like I went into Dial of Destiny and felt like I'd seen all the beats from all the action scenes already. So that was a bit frustrating. Um, it's just part of the job, unfortunately, but it's a real privilege, I think. You know, we often uh, do set visits and you get there and they're shooting the end of the film. And you're like, <laughs> it happens a lot. You're like, what's going on, guys? I can't write about this. But the number of times I've been on a set and there's just like someone getting killed, not for real, uh, for the film, uh, an, act, an actor. It's not eight millimeters. <laughs> no, it's not like a snuff movie. But there'll be, you know, a key third act demise and you're there with your notebook just going, well, I can't write about this. Um, so you do you do often go in knowing more than is ideal, but it's also a privilege. And um, you know, to get to kind of get that that peek into it um is exciting. But yeah, we probably will know a bit more. I kind of love not knowing. It's that that mystery is really exciting. And then it's almost like the more you learn, the the more your imagination, you know, what the possibilities of what the film could be kind of contract a little bit. So sometimes you've got this amazing vision in your mind of what the film is. It doesn't quite match up, but mm. yeah, I'm excited. The other thing I should mention about The Killer is it's um, Fincher reuniting with uh, the writer, Andrew Kevin Walker, who did Seven, which is like, one of my favorite thrillers of all time. And so those two back together is, is exciting. Wow, that's exciting. I did not know that. That's amazing, yeah. Well, it seems like our David Fincher-directed uh, sequel to World War Z is getting even further away then. That's, that's honest, that's one of the most... Dis- I- only discovered this recently. I knew they were talking about a sequel. I didn't know it was going to be Fincher who was going to direct it. I just Fincher doing a zombie movie. Just there's something so absurd about that sentence that makes me absolutely need to see that film. Yeah, I, I would watch it too. I like the first World War Z with two exceptions. I don't like the Brad Pitt's character called Gerald, <laughs> which everyone seems to forget, but it's literally an action hero called Gerald. Right. And the other thing yeah. is like, do you remember the, the scene where his phone goes, his, his mobile phone goes off? 
um, on, on a runway during a special ops yeah. and a load of people get killed and it's because Brad Pitt hasn't put his phone on silent and I, it ruins that film for me because as soon as the hero does something that stupid I'm like well mate you deserve to die like put your phone on silent like yeah. at the best of times like when you're in a meeting put it on silent but especially when zombies are around you yeah yeah because I think that's two stupid things that happen in quick succession because Brad Pitt's phone goes off and previously the scientist, the, the biochemist who's going to solve everything, shoots himself dead uh, by accident. So, I mean, that's quite shocking in a good way, but yeah. All right, then. We're playing the trailer for David Finch's The Killer. So, now we're going to play on the big screen the movie moment, Nick, that makes you literally or metaphorically, whatever your preference, pump your fist in the air. Uh, it's from Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think most of this film makes me, I mean, if you... If there was footage of me watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, it would be pretty much nonstop uh, fist pumping. Um, but yeah, the the opening sequence, which I think is probably my favourite opening of any film of all time. Um, Indy going into the uh, the temple in South America to get the fertility idol, and it's just perfect. And what makes it all the more exciting is that Indy just keeps screwing up, and you've got this. You introduce him as the coolest looking hero, but then he just keeps doing like slightly dumb things <laughs> and uh, that's what's great about that character because I think if they lent too much into he's the coolest guy ever and never does anything wrong like a Steven Seagal movie you kind of lose you know but you lose your sympathy with him but because he's slightly making the odd mistake it makes it really exciting and just the uh, just the succession of things that happen in that scene in quick succession are so iconic the big rolling boulder mm-hmm. the darts the the closing door it's so exciting. And then what I really love is you have the catharsis of him escaping the temple and then he's immediately surrounded by bad guys and he's back in trouble again. And it's, it's Spielberg at his most masterful and playful and the music from John Williams is amazing. So yeah, both fists think for that. That visual gag. Uh, I always remember that when he sort of comes over the crest of the hill running away and you just see him. And then you see the whole tribe of the indigenous people after him and you're just like, oh, that's... It's glorious. Yeah, it's glorious. And uh, then he meets up with Jock, the pilot, who I've interviewed and a guy oh called God. Fred Sorensen. A nice bit of trivia is that he was a real pilot who, uh, when they made Jurassic Park, um, there was a, uh, a big storm that hit the island and they had to evacuate. He was the guy who flew the plane that flew all the actors and Spielberg off the island, like in this emergency kind of operation to get them off before the storm hit. And um, yeah, so there's a really strange link between Spielberg films there. Oh my God, that's mm. that is great trivia. Mm. That's some hot trivia. I I think when you know when it comes to uh, you know because obviously Indy's gone now after Dial of Destiny, which you 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 didn't love as much as you know his original films. I, I mean, mean, not not it's not out there with the original trilogy. Yeah. I think when they come to a spin-off, I'd love to see Jock's story. I wish he'd been in it more because it's sort of great, this sort of right-hand man that he's got. Jock Origins. Mm. <laughs> it's just him fishing for like <laughs> an hour and a half. I don't know whether this is because I read your book and I was reading about Chuck Norris and sort of this American sort of like go in and solve everything and reversing. Is there an argument that Belloc, perhaps, when he takes the idol from Indy, He's almost kind of justified because you've got the American archaeologist who's like this action man, like he just wades in, does all the traps and, and gets out, makes mistakes, but gets up with the idol. But he hasn't bothered to learn the language of the indigenous people where cultured Belloc has actually learnt their language. Funny you spoke of it us. <laughs> right? He's right. He bothered. He went to, yeah, he did his night class in Hovitas. <laughs> like, yeah, maybe that's the maybe that's the spin-off. It's just Belloc like learning this really difficult language. 
I'm going. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I would watch a spin off of any character from Raiders mm-hmm. of the Lost Ark. Uh, it's so stuffed with memorable characters and brilliant little subplots. Um, but yeah, Belloc, you know, he's a smart guy. He just lets Indy do all the work and then he comes along and just nicks it, at, you know, takes it. I remember I couldn't believe that as a kid. I was like, after all, it like really got to me. I was like, that's not fair. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, I was at uh, Comic-Con in London recently and uh, Paul Paul Freeman, isn't it, uh, who plays Belloc, uh, was sitting next to the actor Julian who, from Lil... Ju- Julian Glover. Julian Glover from yeah, The Last Crusade. Yeah, yeah. They were sitting next uh, yeah. to each other at the signing tables. Oh, that's so cool. I think they were both at the Dial of Destiny premiere as well. I remember getting excited that Walter Donovan and Belloc are like, <laughs> come on. That's, that's really amazing. I'm a big indie fan. I was uh, I joined the fan club um, when I was when Last Crusade came out. I was like 10 or 11, and the fan club lasted one month. <laughs> I may have been the only member, but I remember I did get an Indiana Jones comic book, and I treasure it still. Um, That's probably worth something now as well. Yeah, I remember when Last Crusade came out on VHS, I made my dad take me to the video shop an hour before it opened because I was so convinced that there was going to be a huge line of people to get the and they, all the tapes were going to be rented. We were the only people. No one, no one else was there first thing in the morning. But yeah, love those films. Yeah, Last Crusade. I, yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those age-old arguments where there is really no right answer. But everyone, you know, everyone's like, oh, what's your favourite indie film? And it's for me, it's The Last Crusade. They're just adding in Connery to that mix is just, it's 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 by far the funniest. And, and it still delivers in the sort of, the indie action stakes as well. It's glorious. Yeah, it's absolutely glorious. Like, uh, yeah. For me, it's Raiders because there's, there's a, I love the comedy of Last Crusade, but I think Raiders has got this, unique atmosphere where you really feel like you're going into a, a proper lost temple. Do you know what I mean? Like at the, op- the, op- the sound, if you go back and just listen to the sound effects, it's so brilliantly done because they were shooting in Hawaii and, and Rambo 2 shot in, uh, now that was going to be Hawaii, but it ended up being Acapulco. But it's really interesting when you get a movie that feels like it's in the deepest, darkest <laughs> jungle, but actually they're just shooting next to a bar somewhere. <laughs> and um, Raiders, just the, the, the sense of danger and, and, and mystery and exotic, the exotic vibes of that opening sequence are so amazing. And it's just a lot to do with the music and the sounds, the way they shoot it as well. Yeah. yeah. I think I, I've tried to work out what it is about The Last Crusade that I, I love so much. And obviously the comedy plays a big part, but it's such a bombshell, I think, that is dropped at the very end of The Last Crusade, where, <laughs> where you've watched Indiana Jones for three movies. And then at the, at the very end, almost the last line, Connery goes, we called the dog Indiana. <laughs> and you're like, his name's not even Indiana Jones. He stole the dog's name. It's amazing. <laughs> it's so funny. And, and the interplay between those two guys. And there wasn't actually that much difference in their ages. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. But it was like, I'm not even going to guess, but they weren't. They definitely weren't father and son aged apart. But um, <laughs> just having Bond and Indy together i mean it's it's like so iconic yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, all right we are playing the start of raiders as the moment that makes you pump your fist in the air right next up we're going to play what you consider nick cinema's most shocking moment has to be the end of carrie um i find carrie one of those horror films there are horror films that you love and you could watch anytime and then there are horror films that you watch and you're like, all right, I'm good now for like 15, 20 years. <laughs> like I'm, I'm undone because they're so upsetting. Carrie is one of those. Like Carrie for me is one that I pop on every now and again when I'm feeling brave because it, it, I find it just everything about it is so effective and so brilliantly calibrated by Brian De Palma and the bucket of blood scene, the Pino Naggio like music. It's, it's all works so brilliantly, but it's so intense and so dark and horrible the scene with the, the mum and the knives and all that. But, but the moment I'm choosing for this is the final scene, the, um, 
you know, Carrie's died, she's been buried. So you get um, Sue Snell, played by Amy Irving, is coming to the grave to put flowers down and the, Carrie's hand lunges up and grabs her. And it's still fucking terrifying. And um, it's so well done. And it's so interesting that it came about because Brian De Palma watched Deliverance and Deliverance, the Burt Reynolds film, has uh, a, a scene that the last shot is basically a hand coming up from underneath water. It doesn't make any sense in the context of that film. It's not even a supernatural film. But Brian De Palma watched that and just went, yeah, I can do that better. I can do that better. And he did. I mean, it's amazing. Oh, I didn't know it was inspired by Deliverance. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know what you mean about Carrie because she's such a sympathetic character as well. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a weird thing. I think, you know, by the time I came to Carrie, I'd probably seen like, it like the Tim Curry version of it and Nightmare on Elm Street. So I was sort of built for those kind of horrors. A villain is a villain, but then like this weird sort of journey you go on where you're like, well, I'm sympathetic towards her, but Mm. she is doing some really bad Mm. things. It's Mm. sort of, am I cheering this or am I, is this dark? Completely. And it's like, is this the hero or is this the villain? Mm. And the film doesn't, in the great kind of way of a lot of films of that period, doesn't tell you it's ambiguous. And, um, that's what makes that film so iconic. I think it's I've, you've got such mixed feelings about all of it, and you don't know how to feel. But it's so powerful, and um, obviously that moment has been ripped off by so many horror films since. But this is still the best, the best in my opinion. Great stuff. The end of Carrie is the most shocking moment in cinema. So, Nick, next up, we're going to play through the lovely Dolby Atmos speakers. The line or piece of dialogue from a movie that most affected you. I'm going to go back to Fellowship of the Ring, as I often do. And it's got to be the line from Frodo, uh, Elijah Wood's Frodo. Um, I will take the ring to Mordor, though I do not know the way. And um, I mean, it's just such virtuoso filmmaking that leads up to it. You've got the Council of Elrond, this very, very long scene with a lot of characters. And they're all arguing about, and it's all just exposition. But the way Peter Jackson does it is just delightful. And it's got little comedy moments throughout. And it feels serious, but, but light. And then there's, everyone starts arguing about who's, what they're going to do with the ring. And then you've just got this beautiful shot where you just see the, you know, it's sort of the curtains sort of, you know, the characters make way and Frodo's there in the middle. And he, he's this tiny little character who just says, I'll do it. And I just find that so inspiring. And, you know, it's just about courage, really. It's like he's completely ill-equipped to do it and he doesn't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to do it. He's going to give it his best shot. I, I find that really inspiring, you know, don't necessarily play that moment to me before I ever do anything daunting but I think it's just there in the back of my mind that you know if Frodo can do this you can do it mm. so I think it's um, I think it's like a beautiful moment and um, yeah what's great about those Lord of the Rings films is that all the characters really get moments like that but that's for me is the ultimate Frodo moment it's um it's weird isn't it and you wouldn't I, I wouldn't have I didn't I certainly didn't spot this the uh, the first time I watched it because I hadn't seen the subsequent two films obviously but when you've seen the subsequent two films, the expression on Gandalf's face when Frodo says, I'll mm, do it, mm. like th- like face acting wise, Ian McKellen, like it, there's everything in that expression, like the knowledge of what awaits Frodo, the sadness in his eyes that mm. this is going to change Frodo forever. And you're like, that's a weird look the first time you see it. And then you're like, you rewatch it. And you're like, yeah, he knew. He, he knew everything, what, what was going to happen. You're right. You're right. There's that amazing close up of Ian McKellen closing his eyes and he's just looking so heavy. And it's those little moments like that that really sell it. And another director wouldn't, wouldn't have included that probably. But yeah, that moment is so, so impactful. It just, it just kind of recharges that whole film and then you're like thundering into the second half. Yeah, it's great. Great stuff. I will take the ring to Mordor. 
though I do not know the way. Right, the final thing before we get to the movie you have picked for us is the best use of music in a movie. I, this was a, another very, very straightforward one for me. I just, it just jumped straight into my mind. I listened to this music a lot. Metallica uh, used to, I don't know if they still do, but they used to play this at the start of their gigs. It is the most amazing, and it's uh, Ennio Morricone's um, Ecstasy of Gold. Uh, I do not know the Italian title for it, but it has an Italian title as well. From the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it's um, it's just a, it's just operatic. It's uh, I defy you to listen to it and not feel like you ah, you're going to run around looking for gold. Um, and it's just yeah, you got the you got the three characters, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all together in this um, in this sort of space, and the music plays, and it's them just running around <laughs> for ages. Um, on paper, that probably didn't sound like it was going to be an amazing <laughs> set piece, but um, it's really just the film uh, just pauses for this music to play and it is absolutely electric. It's so amazing. I want to listen to it right now. <laughs> right. Well, we are listening to it in the virtual cinema. Oh, wonderful. Glorious. It has set us up. It has put this packed auditorium, Martin Scorsese and yourself in the mood for the movie you have picked for us, the movie. Out of all others, Nick, you have decided to screen for us in our virtual cinema tonight. What are we watching? We're watching another film called The Killer. Uh, we saw the trailer for a film called The Killer. Now we're going to watch another film called The Killer. I, again, like there could have been a million films that I could have screened, um, but I love John Woo. Um, you know, I... You know, I'm writing a book about action and not writing about John Woo. Although Hard Target is in there, his his collaboration with uh, John Claude Van Damme, which I'm very partial to, but not going to screen that. <laughs> um, it's got to be one of his um, Hong Kong films before he came to Hollywood. Um, and for me, it's between Hard Boiled. He made so many great Hong Kong films. He made Better Tomorrow, Better Tomorrow Part Two, um, Bullet in the Head. Um, but it's got to be either Hard Boiled or The Killer. And I, I decided to write, uh, in Empire, we do a section called Masterpiece, and I decided I was going to write about John Woo film, and I literally spent two years trying to deliberate between Hard Boiled and The Killer. And I was like, which one am I going to pick? And I went back and forth, and I ended up doing Hard Boiled, and I kind of regret it. Because <laughs> for me, The Killer is, even though Hard Boiled has got some of the greatest action and uh, him holding the baby, who then pees on him to put out fire, which is genius. Um, for me, The Killer is a perfect film. I love it so much. It's not just the action. Um, it's the the emotion of it and the the beautiful shots, the operaticness. Um, I think it's just pure cinema. And it's a film, if you haven't seen it, it's Chow Yun-Fat uh, playing this hitman in Hong Kong and he's hired to do a hit. He accidentally blinds this woman and so he is trying to help her get her sight back uh, for a cornea transplant. And um, it is just total carnage but in the most amazing beautiful way and it's, you're watching it and just going this is poetry but it's also just men shooting each other um, the church it ends uh, no big spoilers but it ends with a big set piece shootout in a church and um, I don't know it's, it's just got these shots of of statues of the Virgin Mary and candles. And it's, it's so sort of, it could have been so indulgent and, and, and ridiculous, but it, it's not. It's, it's completely stunning and has some of the greatest action you'll ever see. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's often described as one of the greatest action movies ever made. And it's got those John Woo motifs, obviously, that, you know, I, 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 I'd seen, by the time I got to The Killer, I'd seen Face Off and Mission Impossible 2 mm. uh, with the doves. Mm. Been, that's 
blooming doves. They're so. Who knew? Who knew that doves would make something so poetic? He loves a dove. He loves a dove. I interviewed John Woo once and, and asked him about this a CG dove in Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> like, even in Mission Impossible 2, he wanted a dove. And I asked him, you know, about that. And he said, Oh, I wanted to use a real one. And they wouldn't let me because it's like it's flying for a fireball. And I was like, Dude, I don't know if the dove would have made it very far. Um, yeah, but for like, like you, those were my kind of entry John Woo films, Face Off. And, and, and then I discovered his Hong Kong stuff. Um, but really, part of the reason I, I've chosen to screen this is just it doesn't get shown enough. And it, in, a, in a fair world, in a, in, a, in a just world, the killer and hard world would be on the big screen all the time. <laughs> People would just, it would be a part of your education. You have to go and watch it. Um, but they're hard to get hold of. They're not even easy to get hold of on home end. They're not on the streaming services. Not really good Blu-rays. There's some rights stuff. Um, but they are absolute gems. And I'd love to see the killer on the big screen. I've never seen it on the big screen. Oh, really? No, oh, wow. no, never. Fantastic. Well, this is an amazing movie to screen on the big screen here in our virtual cinema. And just because this is going to, I think this is probably going to be the only time this ever happens in the history of the podcast. Let's mention a third movie called The Killer, which is obviously the upcoming. I, I, I read an interview with Charles Roven, the producer this week, saying it's not a remake. It's a, it's a different take on The Killer. But I think there's some DNA of The Killer. In, but John Woo is returning to remake The Killer. Yeah, because one film called The Killer coming out is not confusing enough. Yeah, he's he's um, it got shut down because of the strikes, but they shot most of it in Paris. Um, I think they said, I read the same interview, I think they said it's like two weeks left of filming. Um, I'm very excited to see what he does with it. He's changing it up. Um, it's a female uh, character playing the, in the, instead of the Chow Yun fat uh, character. It's Natalie Emmanuel from Game of Thrones. And um, I, I, yeah, I... I'm very excited. Uh, it's like if Peter Jackson uh, suddenly went back to doing a horror film like he did, like he started out with, I'd be very excited to see what he comes up with. But yeah, John Woo is going back to his roots and um, he hasn't made enough films lately. But I am hoping he's still got the magic and can't wait to see what he what he comes up with. Yeah, it's, it's certainly exciting because it was, uh, what was it, 2003, Paycheck was his last American movie. Um, uh, and now he's got he's got this coming out, the killer, a remake of the killer, and then this. I'm only reading about it ahead of this interview. Um, this one with Joel Kinnaman, a completely silent action movie, uh, which sounds great. Bring it on, the artist with you know <laughs> with a higher body count, I guess. <laughs> um, but no, John Woo is 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 totally unique. I don't think anyone has ever matched the kind of the the level of ballistic poetry or whatever, however you want to frame it. There's even a video game based on. Um, based on the killer and hard-boiled. Uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of it now, but I've played it and it's quite good fun and uh, has got doves in it, in case you're wondering. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. I'm going I'm <laughs> to look that up afterwards. Well, that's it. Nick, the curtains have closed. The guests are milling out, smiling, chatting, and thanking you for taking them on this incredible night out of the movies. But before you go, it's time for our mystery question as we ask, what's in the box? I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Oh, what's in the box? So... Your mystery question this week, oh, you've got a triple parter, Nick. Lucky you, this is a first as well. So, your book, The Last Action Heroes, you've gone on the ultimate deep dive into the 80s action stars. So, Nick, if I, appropriately enough, put a gun to your head and demanded to know answers to the following questions, what would you say? The greatest action movie hero of the 80s, character, not actor. The greatest action movie villain of the 80s, character, not actor. And, of course, the greatest action movie of the 80s, putting the killer to one side because you've already covered that. So let's start with the greatest action movie hero of the 80s, character, not actor. Wow. I'm going to go with... <laughs> 
I'm going to go with a slightly left field one I might regret, but I'm going to go with John Matrix from Commando. Um, I love his ridiculous name. For me, he he represents the ludicrous excess of the 80s as well. I mean, obviously, you've got um, Terminator's Not a Hero. You've got John McClane, who's obviously iconic. But um, in terms of like setting that template of the one-man army um, and just doing it in the most joyful way possible, I love John Matrix. I love that he picks a phone booth up with like one hand, as I remember it. Um, I love that he... Uh, he <laughs> He uh, he likes uh, eating ice cream with his daughter. <laughs> He's got everything. He's a very well developed character, a very realistic character. Um, but yeah, like you said, he um, he originated the Arnold one liner. So he he kind of blazed a trail in a big way. And his name is John Matrix. No human would ever be called John Matrix. Is <laughs> the worst character name of all time, but also the best one. So I'm going to pick that. Oh yeah, and he's got a sense of humor. That bit with uh, David Patrick Kelly, where he's like, "Hey, hey, John, you said you'd kill me last. <laughs> I lied. Fantastic." <laughs> Best line in the movie. All right. John Matrix is the greatest action movie hero of the 80s. The greatest action movie villain of the 80s. No question. Hans Gruber. No question. Um, I mean, amazingly, Alan Rittman's first film role. Crazy. Can you believe it? Crazy. And um, he just brought everything. I mean, he's so sophisticated, but... um, just smart. You you totally buy that this guy has a plan for everything. He's got plans within plans. He's unruffleable, and um, he's fought everything through. Um, I don't know how he's recruited his henchmen. I would love to see a spin-off about his vetting, his, his recruitment process. Um, but you just buy that this guy is, um, and you kind of want him to win, weirdly. I know. You want him to win. He's so likable mm. and, and enjoyable to watch. But then John McClane is obviously a brilliant foil to him. Um, but yeah, Hans Gruber, um, without question. You know, I rewatched Beverly Hills Cop for the first time recently, and I think there's there are elements of Stephen Burkoff's performance in that as Victor Maitland that, that have made their way into Alan Rickman's performance. Alan Rickman is a better villain, but there is there's some there's a little bit of a crossover of DNA there. Interesting, yeah. And I, everyone was, I mean, it was so uh, imitated in turn by everyone else, and. Um, Powers Booth, I'm quite fond of Powers Booth in Sudden Death, the Van Damme film, yeah. where they take over his diehard in an ice rink. <laughs> it really is that. And he said he took, I, I spoke to him about it once, and he said he took that role because of Hans Gruber and Die Hard, and he said the material wasn't there. Although he does threaten to stuff spiders into a little girl's <laughs> mouth at one point, which is a very strange threat. Um, but uh, yeah, everybody was everybody was trying to do, you know, Jeremy Irons in Die Hard 3, and everyone yeah. was trying to do what Rickman did, but no one could. No. No, it's a special performance. Right, the big one then. The greatest action movie of the 80s, Nick. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. That is a big one. It's a big one. That's a big one. It's a big one. It's, it's something that may be carved into marble in the future. I, I mean, if I can't go into the 90s... So it's, for me, it's between, uh, it's between Terminator 2 and Die Hard. Terminator 2 is into the 90s. So if we're just sticking to 80s, I'm going to say Die Hard. I mean, right. Like I said, it, it it changed it changed the action genre completely. Um, it has comedy, it has thrills, it has incredible action. The camera works amazing, incredible iconic performances. Mm-hmm. It's unbeatable. Um, and they, you know, they kept making Die Hard films and they couldn't get close. Although I have a very partial to Die Hard Three, 
Um, really? Yeah. I, I put I I've, I watched three again recently, and it's the the whole because wasn't that a script called Simon Says initially that then was reversioned as a Die Hard movie? It was it was all, it was a, a, an action movie that they repurposed, which I think four was as well, wasn't it? That was, and two and two. They were all um, all of the Die Hard sequels started out as material as different things, um, different properties that they kind of turned into Die Hard films. Um, two was based on a novel. Uh, there wasn't a Die Hard, uh, wasn't by the, the writer of the book that Die Hard was based on. But um, yeah, there was going to be a Die Hard on a boat, um, which would on a cruise ship, which would have been interesting. But yeah, they were they were kind of looking at all the disaster movies and patching Die Hard onto that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Tower Block, Towering Inferno, Airport, Airport. Uh, so they were, they were going to do a Poseidon Adventure one. Um, yeah, I quite like the third one. But Jeremy Lyons isn't a patch on, on, on Gruber, but it's got some great, great moments in it. But um, yeah, just, just in terms of just the concept being so clean, you've got a bunch of terrorists stuck in a building. How do you get out? And it has so much fun with that concept. Yeah. Well, uh, we've listed so many unpopular opinions. It's good to end on a popular opinion. <laughs> Die Hard is the greatest action movie of the 80s. Wow, that is it, Nick. Your taxi has arrived to ferry you back to reality from our virtual dimension of film. But before you go, let's recap your perfect night out at the cinema. You have gone with the great Martin Scorsese at 7.30pm. You were sitting halfway back in the middle and you were having the classic order of popcorn sweet and salted with a full fat Coke. We are putting up a poster for your fondest movie memory of Fellowship of the Ring. Your worst movie memory is the end of days, but the blessing in disguise was the last 20 minutes were without sound. The last performance that brought you to tears was Greta Lee in Past Lives, and your unpopular movie opinion is there is no good Pirates of the Caribbean movie. In the auditorium, we are going to be playing the trailer for David Fincher's The Killer, followed by the moment that makes you pump your fist in the air, Indiana Jones escaping from the temple at the start of Raiders. The shocking moment is the end of Carrie when her hand pops out of the ground. The line of dialogue is from Fellowship of the Ring. I will take the ring to Mordor though I do not know the way. And the best use of music in a movie. Ecstasy of gold from the good, the bad and the ugly before we watch John Woo's 1989 movie, The Killer. Nick, thank you for taking us on a trip to the movies. Have you had a good time? I've had a great time. That sounds like a pretty good night, it's i got to say. Night. Yeah, I'm going to cancel my plans for tonight. Let's do it. It's a fantastic night. And uh, I will say once again, a fantastic book, The Last Action Heroes. Uh, it's out on the 24th of August, available to pre-order now. If you're an action movie fan, and even if you're not, it's a fantastic read. Uh, so thank you for bringing that into the world as well, Nick. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. And as Nick's cab carries him away from our virtual cinema, off into the distance, we must all leave his movie paradise and return to reality. But to soften the blow, how would you like a pair of tickets for a night out at a very real Odeon cinema? Each week, we give away a pair to someone who leaves us a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. It's that simple. So jump on there, leave us a review, and if I read it out, I will send you some tickets. The competition is only open to UK residents, and the tickets exclude Odeon Leicester Square and Odeon Lux. And just before I say my final farewell for this episode, don't forget you can find the full video for today's Nick DeSemlian interview and indeed for every guest on our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel. So please head over there and as I said at the start, help us grow the podcast by hitting that subscribe button. And that really is it. I'll be back next week when another guest fills our cinema with their celluloid dreams as they take us on a trip to the movies. Bye-bye. <laughs>